The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. Joining us for the Culture Club this evening is Orla McBride, Director of the National Archives. And Orla, before we get to all your choices and before we hear about the 2021 commemoration programme of events, just what exactly is the National Archives and how accessible are they to the general public? I suppose, Matt, we describe ourselves as the keeper of the state's memory. So all of the records relating to the state from the early days of the foundation of the state, so the late 1919-2021, all of the records prior to the establishment of the free state, right up to the present time. So, so those ones that survived, because weren't a lot of them destroyed? They were destroyed in the fire in the four courts, the Public Record Office, which was the National Archives back in 1922. Um, it was destroyed as part uh, during the start of the Civil War. And many of those records relating to the period that we were under British administration were destroyed. But after the Free State was established in 1921, after the treaty was signed, all of those records still remain in our collection. So we tell the stories relating to the political life of the nation, the economic life of the nation, the cultural life of the nation um, the artistic life of the nation so all those records we look after on behalf of the Irish people. That must be an enormous amount of paper isn't it? It's a huge amount of paper. We have about 5 million records just around the street here, just up on Bishop Street which is the old Jacobs factory um, and we occupy that as well as um, the old public record office in the four courts. Have you digitised much of it? We have digitised. People will be really familiar with the 1901 and the 1911 census and the digitisation of, of the early census and we're moving on now to the 1926 census which is the first census of the um, the free state. Um, yes, we have digitised a lot of them. As part of the commemorations programme actually we've got a huge amount of money from the state to be able to to digitise. So everything from the cabinet minutes, the early cabinet minutes, um, all of the records that will go on display now as part of our um, the treaty exhibition um, all of those records will be digitised. So after and does that the make accessibility for oh, anyone yeah, much huge. easier? Yeah, huge. I mean, if you live in Dingle or you're living in Donegal, it's not so easy to get up to Dublin. It certainly hasn't been easy over the last 18 months. So we've done a huge amount of digitisation during the pandemic so that people have been able to access the records. And do the general public look for these things beyond historians and academics? Do you get the general public looking particularly for things maybe about their ancestors yeah, we do. I mean, we call them citizen researchers, um, and they're you know they're they're a valid community that come in and use the national archives, um, and they're coming in. It may be over a land dispute, and they want to to find out the will of the the man that lived next door because we have all of those you know the wills and testamentary records as well as so it could be something as as small as the field down the road that is in dispute, and people travel up and come in, and and we pull the records, and then they 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 can access them. So yes, yeah, so people come in, use the National Archives. It's opened every day from, from 10 until 5. But then, as as I say, it is about trying to get as much available online so that people across the country, but also all over the world, um, our whole genealogy uh, service that used to be in uh, you know on site that's now um that's that's exclusively online so if you're living in Nantucket or you're living in Perth you can access the genealogy service in the national archives as quick as you could coming into the national archives but you don't get the sort of personal service obviously that your staff were able to we're giving help perhaps to make suggestions as to where to look Absolutely. are those necessarily easy to do online no they're not no they're not but 
we have people who are pretty expert in terms of genealogy um, and are really, really good at, at, I couldn't do it, but I mean, they're absolutely expert and they will they will take you on that journey. Um, and the more clues you give them, um, the more they'll be able to to, um, to find out on your behalf. Tell us about the, the big event that you're doing in relation to the Treaty of 1921. So on Monday, which is the 11th of October, we will open an exhibition in London, the Treaty 1921, records from the National Archives. And the exhibition is opening on the day that 26 Irish men and women travelled to London. And on that day, five of them walked into Downing Street to commence negotiations with Lord George and Birkenhead and Churchill and the British government, British cabinet ministers, to negotiate a peace treaty, as they called it. It was a peace conference, they called it. It was a peace treaty um, on behalf of Ireland and between Ireland and Great Britain. And that is the treaty um, that we have in the National Archives that has never been seen by the Irish public. So we'll put it on, on display here in Dublin on the 6th of December in the Coach House in Dublin Castle. And it'll be an exhibition of records relating to that period in our history from October to December and those two months that those people spent in London and then brought home the ex- uh, brought home the treaty. Um, we'll have the cabinet minutes and then we have that public, uh, the international reaction to the signing of the treaty and then obviously uh, we all know what happened thereafter. So it really, from from the National Archives perspective, it's about placing the authenticity of the record at the centre of the exhibition. We're not historians, we're not looking at it through any political lens, we just want to present the records to the Irish people that tell the story of the foundation of the state. How did you get into all of this? How do you become the director of the National Archives? Well, up until a year and a half ago, I was the director of the National of the Arts Council. So it's a completely different world for me, the world of history. Um, but it's the world of, of storytelling in a way. And it's about, you know, so in a way I worked in theatre for years and that was about bringing a script to life and, and communicating to a public. And this is about bringing records to life and bringing them to the public and telling different stories. Uh, so the story we're telling at the moment is a story relating to the foundation of the state. But really, it's our intention um, to move through the collections that we have. We have extraordinary collections relating to, you know, prisoners and penal records and workhouse records. And there are so many stories in our history um, that deserve to be told. And we have those records and we need to use them to tell those stories to the Irish public. Given your previous involvement in the Arts Council, looking forward to all of your choices now for the Culture Club this evening. But I wouldn't have thought, given that background and record, that you would have picked... Your first single that you ever bought. Go on, tell us what it is. Oh yeah, okay. It was uh, Whams. Wake <laughs> me up. There is a difference now from everything we've just been talking yeah, about. Wake me up before you go, go Wham. Now, it was the 1980s. You were a child. I was a, a, t- a young teenager growing up in Donegal and it was the first single I ever bought. I say it now almost with embarrassment. Why? But actually, they were pretty cool. Andrew Ridgely and, and George Michael were pretty cool. Do you remember they wore those oversized T-shirts? Um, that's, I can't Choose Life. So You're possibly the first person who ever said Andrew Ridgely before George Michael when you're talking about Wham. What is the I, reason I, for that? I found Andrew Ridgely much, much more attractive <laughs> than George Michael. <laughs> Let's hear a little bit of that.
McBride is with us for the Culture Club, Director of the National Archives. But I suspect many listeners might have started like you would Wham, but you certainly went on a musical journey because when we've asked you to nominate your favourite band musician, you've gone very heavily into jazz. Yeah, I moved on from Wham pretty quickly. <laughs> and uh, yeah, Miles Davis, really, I suppose it's the antithesis really of, of the pop of Wham. But Miles Davis and, and John Coltrane are two of my I just adore them. I love jazz. I love jazz music. I think I bought my first Miles Davis CD when I was in in, in college in Trinity. Um, and, you know, he's just the most extraordinary trumpeteer, composer, uh, you know, his starting in those early days in Harlem with Charlie Parker and uh, Dizzy Gillespie. And oh, my God, it's intoxicating jazz, really. Um, and and I listen to it again and again and again um, and still listen to it and adore it. Uh, it... Uh, it, I never tire of it, really. So sketches of Spain or a kind of blue are just really lovely. He then, like many musicians, you know, it was a journey and it was an arc in terms of his own practice. So he evolved from those early days of 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 playing in the nineteen forties in in jam sessions in Harlem. Um, to kind of moving into rock and funk and electronic music in the 1970s and that kind of experimentation. And did you follow that as well? Yeah, I did. And, you know, there is that Bitches Brew, which is that really famous kind of jazz uh, fusion or whatever you might like to call it. And I did, but I... I still will always return to those really early, early uh, recordings because I think they're just extraordinary. Well, we have from the Kind of Blue album, uh, this is uh, Freddie Freeloader, which also features John Coltrane on saxophone. Mm. False start there, but that is Freddie Freeloader from Miles Davis as a kind of blue album with John Coltrane and saxophone. Would you fear, all of my brides, that that type of music might be in danger of dying out, that fewer and fewer people are playing it and listening to it? No, because I suppose from my time in the Arts Council, there are, you know, I was at a, an end Walsh um, uh, opera the other night as part of the Dublin Theatre Festival and um, Crash Ensemble were playing. Now they were playing, obviously it was an opera piece, but you've got ensembles like that that are that are experimenting and still creating versions of new music, jazz music, uh, contemporary music today. Um, and really that's about 
that tells the story of the evolution of the art form in a way that those experimental days of the 1940s with Dizzy Gillespie and Count Basie and John Coltrane and Miles Davis and those, they evolved, you know, when I I spoke about uh, Miles in the 1970s and we can see other, I mean, I I go to New York, I used to go to New York. You'll get to New York again. Sometime. Um, and, And I always go to the Village Vanguard and you always see new ensembles that are that are stretching our understanding of what jazz might be and taking it to new places and coming back to the more traditional form and you know going between the two and that really is that's that's what music should be about and that's the the joy of the musician really is to is to experiment and to play and so i have no doubt that 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 in 20, 30, 40 years time, a version of jazz that still nods back to the music of Miles Davis and John Coltrane will still exist. You've picked as a favourite album, one which must be around 50 years old at this stage, but has come up a number of times in the Culture Club. You've gone for Van Morrison's Astral Weeks. Why so? Yeah, and again, I suppose it is that jazz. I mean, when he did it, it is actually 68. So, yeah, it's over 50 years old, uh, 54. Four, yeah, um, fifty-three. Uh, so this this came after Brown Eyed Girl. So you can imagine, Van was huge. It was you know he was known in a particular genre of pop, and Van, being Van, wanted to try something different. So he was in the states. He was in New York. He went to up. He went upstate New York. Got into a sound studio with a couple of of jazzing, you know, uh, session musicians who'd actually worked with Miles Davis and and Charles Mingus and got into a room with them and created Astral Weeks and uh, recorded in three sessions. The strings that we'll hear were overdubbed afterwards and Davis er, and Morrison himself always says that he didn't like the overdubbing of the strings on the album, but I actually think they're fantastic. Um, So it's a huge departure for Van Morrison in those early days of his career. I think it's one of the most outstanding, extraordinary uh, pieces of of folk jazz ever created. It's kind of blues and it's just extraordinary. But it is, I suppose, for me, it's because it's so jazz influenced as an acoustic um, album that I really love. Um, Now, don't my favorite song is is Madame George, um, but I love them all on it. Uh, and in a way, don't ask me what the song means because Van himself will say, "I didn't write them with meaning." You know, it's just almost like a stream of consciousness. It's about you know if you listen to something like Madame George, um, it's he's calling up. It's 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 a, a memory song. He's thinking about Belfast. He's calling up streets and roads. And, oh, it's just the most beautiful album. Unfortunately, that's not the track we have. We have a little bit of Cypress Avenue. Oh, it's so beautiful too. Avenue 
And I'm conquered in a car seat Nothing that I can do I may go crazy Van Morrison from Astral Weeks at Cypress Avenue. Um, the best gig you were ever at, though, is completely different, mm. I think, isn't it, to what we've heard about your love of jazz and blues there. You've gone for something at the point in 1996. Pulp. Yeah, Pulp and the Point Depot in 1996. Um, and it still remains one of the best gigs of my entire life. Why? Oh, my God, Jarvis Cocker bopping up and down on stage. It was just extraordinary. The energy, it was a, it, it was that time. It was Britpop, it was Blur, it was Oasis. I wasn't mad about Oasis. I quite liked Blur. Actually, I really did like Blur. But there was something about Jarvis Cocker and that kind of Sheffield rootedness in the music that I just loved. And they they were just great songs. Um, and to this day, I still love Pulp. And I saw him very recently last year in the, during the lockdown. And we were all so desperate for any kind of, you know, cultural interaction. And he was um, uh, he was on Jules Holland one night, you know, where Jules was interviewing uh, musicians. And he came on and even now, you know, he's quite an idiosyncratic musician. Um, but he's still so committed to that trying to find that unique voice, which I think he found in Pulp um, and, and and Common People. Oh, my God. Like, you know, those songs, there's just an authenticity about them. There's a kind of a, a northern Englishness about them. But there's a wonderful, wonderful... The music is just great. The song we have, and it's not from the Point concert. We don't have a recording of that. But this is Pulp Live and this is Disco 2000. Fantastic. <sighs> Disco 2000. Pat, can I just say, you can hear the crowd. And I think that's the one thing about Pulp is that the songs are stories. So they know every single word because they went with the story. So there's a whole story in that that the audience and and Pulp lovers just, just go with and then they can recite them. It's poetry and music. Give us a favourite movie. My favourite movie is Life is Beautiful, that 1997 Italian movie, Roberto Benigni. He he wrote it, uh, he starred in it, and it is the most 
beautiful, heartbreaking, powerful film about a parent's love for their child. So it's set in Italy, in northern, in Nazi-occupied Italy, in the Second World War. And he's a Jewish, Guido's his name, and he's a Jewish book uh, bookseller. He owns a bookshop. And they're brought away to a concentration camp himself, his wife and his, uh, and his little boy. And to try and, and shield his little boy from the horrors of the concentration camp, he creates this illusion that they're playing a game. And they're playing this game and the, the prize will be that they'll win a tank at the end of it. So the the whole film is about him because the mother's taken away to the, where the women are and he's with the little boy. And the whole thing is to cr- try and shield the little boy, as I say, from the horrors of the concentration camp um, and get and survive. So it's constantly about him playing games and hiding things from the little boy and saying, OK, hide in there now for the next four hours and you'll make 10 points and you'll make 100 points. And it's all about trying to make a thousand points and they'll win They'll win the the tank. And towards the end of the movie, they know that the Allied forces are coming. The Nazis are, are, are about to leave and want to destroy what they can before they leave. Guido tries to go to find his wife. And in going to find his wife, the Nazis shoot him. And the little boy is hiding in a sweatbox. And then the next thing, the Allied troops arrive in the concentration camp. The little boy comes out of the sweatbox and he sees the tank and he says, we won the game, Papa, we won the game. And he comes out and the American soldiers bring him up and, and, and put him on the top of the tank and he thinks he's won, but he doesn't know where his daddy is. And the next thing, they're on the tank and there's a procession of the um, of the survivors leaving the camp and he sees his mama and he's reunited with his mother and it's and it's told through and that final piece is a monologue of the survivor of the man that the book was about. It's the most beautiful movie. It's obviously telling the story of, of, of World War Two, but it's about a parent's absolute devotion and love to their child and trying to hide them from from the horrors of the reality that's around them. OK, also an Italian influence in your favourite book. Yes, my favourite book. Um, and this was my pandemic reading. Um I read Elena Ferrante's um, The Neapolitan Novels, they call them. So she, she, he, we don't know who Elena Ferrante is. Um, it's a, a pseudonym, but we don't know who the real uh, writer is. But four books about two little girls growing up in a very disadvantaged community in Naples. And it tells their lives over 40, 50, 60 years from little girls of six years of age to grown women in old age. And really, one of them prospers and goes on to be a, a, a famous writer. Writer. The other one stays in Naples, and 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 it's just really how their lives. One of the the Camorra are very active in 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 the neighbourhood where they come from, and it just tells that story and chronicles their lives. It's beautiful. We have an extract from the audiobook of my beautiful friend. His mother was gone. Since when? Since two weeks ago. And you're calling me now? My tone must have seemed hostile. Even though I wasn't angry or offended, there was just a touch of sarcasm. He tried to respond, but he did so in an awkward, muddled way, half in dialect, half in Italian. He said he was sure that his mother was wandering around Naples as usual. Even at night? You know how she is. I do. But does two weeks of absence seem normal? Yes. 
You haven't seen her for a while, Elena. She's gotten worse. She's never sleepy. She comes in, goes out, does what she likes. Anyway, in the end, he had started to get worried. He had asked everyone, made the rounds of the hospitals. He had even gone to the police. Nothing. His mother wasn't anywhere. What a good son. A large man, 40 years old, who hadn't worked in his life. Just a small-time crook and spendthrift. I could imagine how carefully he had done his searching. Not at all. I believe there are TV adaptations now of the Elena Fronte books, which a lot of people are raving about, but your TV choice is very different. Yes. Sex in the City. This is like your adult wham choice, really, this isn't it? This is my <laughs> adult wham choice. Yeah, this is Sex in the City. Um, and, and I'm very much looking forward to the reboot. Are you? Uh, yeah, I am. I am. Why? And I even watched uh, the first and second movie, or maybe there were three of them. I mean, they were torture to watch. But look, this was this was an exciting time. It was the late 1990s. I had discovered New York for the first time. And here I was looking at the lives of these four extraordinary, glamorous women from New York being reflected back at me here sitting in Dublin. I can say I was never the Charlotte amongst the three. Um, Which uh, one were you? (laughs) A combination of a couple of them, I think. Um, But it was about fashion. It was about friendship. It was about New York. It was exciting. It was, oh, it was just, it was refreshing. And I'll tell you a story when they were making the second, the first movie of Sex and the City. And I, we, we were so obsessed with Sex and the City that we used to rent an apartment on Perry Street when we would go to New York just to pretend that we, we were Carrie. And once I was going to New York, rocked up on the Aer Lingus flight into um, Manhattan, into Perry Street at, say, nine o'clock in the morning, ten o'clock in the morning, and they were shooting the movie. And I had my parents with me because they'd never been to New York and I brought them to New York and my mother wouldn't know sex in the city if it hit her. But we're from Donegal and Sarah Jessica Parker has a house about a half an hour, 20 minutes away from us. So my mother goes up to her and says, I believe you're Sarah Jessica Parker. She says, we're from Ardra. And Sarah Jessica Parker stops, looks at my mother and says, you're joking. And then they have this whole big conversation about Kilcar, where she has the house, and Ardra, where we have the house. Now, my mother didn't really know who she was. I was like, mum, that's Sarah Jessica Parker. <laughs> so, And we had been given access into Perry Street while they were filming because we were staying there. So, yes, I love Sex in the City. I don't have time to play the clip. I only have time to get a favourite podcast, which, given all the things you've told us, is no surprise, it's The New Yorker. It's The New Yorker, yeah. It's The New Yorker. And I guess it's not because I love New York, but I think it's just because it's just it's really intelligent. Um, I can get fiction. I can get poetry. I can get David Remnick talking about climate change or talking about talking to Jonathan Franzen about his newest novel or it just it goes from A to Z and it can be anything. And I just love it. And it, it keeps us opened up to, you know, a different world while our world has been closed down for so long. I didn't get a chance to go to your favourite player musical Dancing at Lunasa by Brian Friel was your selection but unfortunately I'm out of time. Orla McBride, Director of the National Archives, thank you so much for joining us here on The Last Word of Today FM to do today's Culture Club. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today FM.